Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Eric Cohn, Director of Communications at the Acton Institute, and Dylan Palman, Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, discuss free speech, cancel culture, and the difference between propriety and virtue from the perspective of economist and philosopher Adam Smith. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Dylan Palman. Dylan is a research fellow at the Acton Institute and the managing editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, a peer-reviewed academic journal published by the Acton Institute that promotes intellectual exploration of the relationship between economics and morality from both social science and theological perspectives. Dylan, welcome back to Acton Line. Thanks for having me. So Dylan, what we wanted to talk about today were issues surrounding the current status of freedom of speech, um, which I think also revolves around a conversation that a lot of people are having about the idea of cancel culture. So with a lot of these conversations, I like to do a lot of table setting at the beginning. So to you, what is cancel culture? So cancel culture is, um, I guess to put it kind of colorfully, it is usually social media based, but not really limited to that. And it's kind of like the uh, the torches and pitchforks uh, approach to seeking uh, justice, justice for grievances. Um, and a lot of times people will dig up, oh, you tweeted something 10 years ago and you shouldn't have said that. And I can't believe so-and-so is employing you. Uh, and very often cancel culture is joined with an effort to uh, basically in some ways, use the market to try to manipulate um, business behavior, right? So uh, some TV company is employing somebody on a show and it comes out that they said something uh, offensive, you know, many years ago. Everybody gets upset about it and that person gets fired. Um, And in many cases, they don't stop there. They try to, you know, up their efforts so this person never even gets hired again. They want to basically blacklist them. Um, so it's kind of like a populist uh, sort of blacklist. Uh, um, and it, it can be applied in all sorts of different ways and, frankly, from from all sorts of different perspectives. So uh, as much as it is often associated with the political left and for very good reason, um, you do see similar sorts of behavior on the right as well. So I think there are a lot of directions we could go there. I, I think there are some distinctions that we can make or some different buckets we can make from this. Cause there seems to me to be a difference between there are people who are already famous mm-hmm. who are seemingly canceled. And then there are the people who are unknown 
and become famous because they were canceled. I mean, an example of the the famous version would be, oh, let's say Roseanne Barr, who yeah. had, of course, she's a comedian. She had a TV show in the late 80s, early 90s. She has the TV show come back. She said kooky things for quite a while, and now that Twitter gives a voice to absolutely everyone at every moment they want to say something, she tweets some kooky things and eventually loses her TV show because of it. Mm -hmm. The example of the non-famous version would be, I think, Justine Sacco is really one of the first and, and clearest of these, that she was a PR executive with a few hundred followers on Twitter who made a, a fairly bad and crass joke about traveling to Africa and that she hoped she wouldn't get AIDS, but she knows she won't because she's white. And by the time her plane landed in South Africa, she was trending on Twitter. She was fired from her job. Mm-hmm. Um, do I mean, is it a helpful to separate out the those different kinds of people that are involved in this phenomenon um well i suppose so um in as much as you know with with who who has been given much uh, much will be expected so if somebody already has a place of privilege it's not surprising that people try to hold them to a higher standard um and maybe people should be a little more uh, flexible, forgiving, whatever with others, but it's still basically the same phenomenon, right? You're you're taking someone, you're basically trying to hold them accountable through the court of public opinion. Now, there are also, and we, maybe we'll get into this, people who are trying to legislate based on their views of what ought to be canceled, um, and that's a whole different conversation. But a lot of this is is an exercise of public shame. Um, I remember actually uh, uh, a few years ago when the the Me Too movement um, had just started. Um, that's yet another movement that uh, – and I, I think all of these things are probably a little more complicated than people want to make them. Um, so, for example, crimes of sexual assault have a statute of limitations. And as, after a certain point, the courts will do nothing. Um, and so what recourse do people have? Well, uh, they started canceling people with the Me Too hashtag. And uh, – I remember there was a French actress who tried to push back against this. In fact, there was I think it was a large group of French actresses. They signed like a statement, whatever. Uh, but she called it puritanical. And it was interesting to me that everyone, uh, you know, in America said, oh, how dare you say that? Whereas I kind of thought about it. And I was like, you know, it is puritanical. And maybe that's what's the, the kernel of goodness to it, <laughs> right? That there's an expectation that there are certain behaviors that are socially unacceptable, um, and we shouldn't stand for that. Um, so I, to be very charitable, I think that's where a lot of it is coming from. Um, now, the question of who gets to decide and whose judgment is correct uh, and what collateral damage is acceptable um, is huge. And, and I think that's where Suddenly, you know, we've gotten to the point where everybody's getting canceled for everything, and it's pretty much synonymous with a, a, a sort of toxic mob mentality, at least in some circles today. Yeah, I think the the best version of the defense, and I just listened to a conversation on a New York Times podcast between Robbie Suave of Reason Magazine and Will Wilkinson recently of the Niskanen Center um, on this particular topic, and I think the best version of the defense of of cancel culture, what we would call cancel culture being some kind of a, a virtuous exercise is that it's groups that typically have not had a lot of power 
uh, who would be somehow put upon by the um, the utterances of people that we would call canceled in this conversation, being able to collectively band together and enforce some kind of recourse, some kind of accountability for the things people said that are untoward or undes- they would view undesirable in a society where norms are changing. Do, do you think there's – does that seem reasonable or is there – you know, is that – I guess the best defense, um, is it, but to you more than just about accountability? Um, well, I think again, yeah, again, to be charitable, I think people are, you know, they're trying in many cases, I think they're speaking truth to power or they're holding people accountable. Um, but the, the goalposts are changing. And in fact, different communities have different expectations of what is proper behavior. Um, and so even while, there are cultural shifts happening. There's multiple cultures coexisting. Um, and trying to impose one culture's expectations upon all others um, really just heightens the conflict. It heightens um, the difficulty of coexisting with our neighbors. Um, so I I worry about it in those terms that I see some of the reasons for it. I can I can take a charitable view and say, yeah, there are some grievances that I get that there's kind of no other way uh, to feel like you can get any kind of justice for them. Um, but there needs to be, I think, a, a certain amount of caution that there doesn't seem to be. Uh, again, this this there really does often seem to be a mob mentality that that suddenly you know one person tweets upset and that gets retweeted and it goes viral and you know it just becomes a snowballing sort of thing. Uh, and then there there also seems to be you know very little forgiveness uh, that there are people that you know they they got canceled and they came out and they said you know what I screwed up I did I did a bad thing and. Uh, you know, maybe there are people out there that forgive them, but again, on you know, Twitter does not reflect real life in general. But even even on Twitter, it's not representative of everyone there, right? But you see, it doesn't it doesn't seem to matter. I don't think I've ever seen an apology that did not get rejected, <laughs> right? Like I, yes. I don't, I, you know. So it, it, there seems to be no path of restoration uh, for anybody, and uh, and so then when it becomes so absolute. Well, why not just dig in your heels, right? Like, they, you know, it, it actually disincentivized any kind of remorse and any kinds of, gen, like, actual restoration or reparation. Um, and I think that that ends up actually making, being counterproductive, even for a person's own perspective, uh, you know, whatever whatever they're coming from, pr- progressive activists or, um, you know, disaffected evangelical, whatever the case may be, right? Um, I, I think you just end up... Uh, digging those trenches deeper rather than finding uh, uh, a new new terms for peace. Yeah, I think I, I remember talking to a PR executive who had been asked the question of what do you do in these circumstances if you are at the center of one of these uh, shame storms or mobs that are coming after you for something you said or or did or tweeted. And his advice was just brace yourself and take it because it's not just that, you know, as you said, I think you're right about it, that the apology is often rejected. 
the apology often makes things worse. Yeah. The people see that now the mob sees that as a sign of weakness and they go after you all the more because of it. And I think there have been people in, in the PR world who've looked at it and said, you know, if you're a, a corporation, let's say, that's done something uh, bad, the, the best advice they could give is just weather it out for 48 hours and people will move on, um, which seems to be, I think it, it leads me to something that I've, observed about this, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. What I see here is fundamentally, I think, a functioning form of a public religion that has no forgiveness, but demands perpetual atonement. And there's just, there's nothing but misery down that path, because without, without forgiveness, it is to me, always going to be just a very dark place where we have yet to sort out here, and I think in in this cancel culture problem, what if there should be punishment? What should the punishment be, and how long should it go on? Yeah, uh, I mean, I I tend to personally be hesitant to just call things religion that aren't officially so, um, but. There's certainly um, a moral force to it. There's a, a moral culture uh, that lacks these things. And morality and religion are not unrelated, of course. Uh, there are religious aspects to it. You know, I, I mentioned the Puritans. I, I meant that in a, in a historical sense, right? <laughs> they, they, um, you, could, you could use um, maybe a more Mennonite metaphor, if you want, of shunning people and that sort of thing. And they're just trying to take that sort of practice that is a, a, at base a religious practice and apply it to society as a whole, um, whether of a specific community or of a nation uh, and, and so on. Um, so and, and I think I think, of course, being a Christian, um, Christians ought to have a very different perspective, uh, even if we think, OK, you know, past injustices should not be overlooked. Um, uh, there, there also has to be some kind of path for genuine reparation, reformation, forgiveness um, that really seems to be lacking uh, in in this current movement. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk more generally about free speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I can't remember who I heard say this, but I I thought it was an interesting observation that if we look right now at the law surrounding freedom of speech, it's arguably never been better. Um, You have, if you look at Supreme Court decisions, lower court decisions, the legal protections for one's freedom of speech are arguably as strong as they've ever been. But the other person's counterpoint was the the culture seems to be slipping, that the culture of freedom of speech seems to be eroding away both on the left and on the right. Are are you observing something similar or would you you disagree with that? No, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think this is a, a... at base, a cultural problem, um, and therefore needs a cultural solution. However, I would point out, uh, as others have, um, that this has not stopped people from trying to legislate in favor of, uh, you know, what what they think ought to be canceled. Um, uh, Nick Gillespie at Reason recently uh, wrote an article uh, on cancel culture, and he talked about uh, Kentucky lawmakers trying to introduce legislation that would make uh, users of uh, social media platforms entitled to damages if the platform deletes or censors their religious or political posts. Um, I I don't want platforms to censor religious or political posts, but these are private businesses. Like, yeah, they're public forums, but they are hosted 
by private entities that have a right to do what they want and to set their own policies. Um, and people have a right to leave them and or, you know, to to speak out against them and all that sort of thing. Um, but this is something different. Trying to, to write a law to make it illegal, to make it, uh, you know, finable, imprisonable, uh, to to do run your business as you see fit uh, is very uh, concerning. Uh, now, chances are, even if it passes, it'll get struck down in the courts. Uh, as you said, we are in a good place legally in terms of free speech. But um, I would not expect that to go away on the right or the left. Uh, people trying to take a cultural problem and find a political or legal solution to it. How do you think and why do you think we got here to this cultural battle over freedom of speech? I mean, you don't have to go back that far to find the both the left and the right being defensive of the idea of freedom of speech. Um, you know, on you, you had the the campus left, which if you go back to the 60s and the 70s, you know, they were all in favor of it. The, the orientation of the campus seems to have changed dramatically. What, if anything, do you attribute this cultural shift to? Uh, so my my thought is it has become politically beneficial for people to. Uh, really snowball the sense of victimhood and grievance, um, again, on the right and the left, um, to the point where when you take something that is, okay, a matter of a, a mismatch of cultures and cultural expectations or differences of worldviews, well, we've had different people living next to each other, you know, forever, right? Um, and one of the great things about uh, our modern liberal societies is usually they can do that peacefully, um, Protestants and Catholics live together in this country without, like, going to war. Um, that doesn't seem remarkable to us today, but in the scope of history, that's amazing, right? Um, so I, I look at it as you have these cultural mismatches that then have been politicized. And despite the fact that, you know, in an idealized sense, politics is supposed to be this uh, realm of compromise, it much more often is kind of the zero-sum nature of well, we get elected, and if we get elected, that means we won, the other people lost, and now we get to write the laws. Um, and everything is on these zero-sum sort of terms. If some person gains, another person loses. Um, that is very different from the market, and it's very different from culture, um, or at least from what culture could be. Uh, so I, I think you I, – I don't know. I, I don't have a great theory of, like, well, how, do, how exactly, you know, who's to blame or anything like that. Um, but I certainly think you see it. Uh, you see kind of the identity politics of the left, maybe the, the talk radio um, perpetual victimization on the right, uh, just really snowballing year after year. Uh, people seeing, hey, you know, when I appeal to these sorts of things, uh, I tend we, – we get elected. We win the elections. We, we get to make the laws. And um, uh, this is something Stephanie Slade pointed out, that people uh, – you know, people in, in D.C. And, and journalists, they know that, like, uh, perceived runaway political correctness uh, just has huge uh, attention from the public. So uh, people have tapped into this. Politicians have tapped into this. Uh, commentators have tapped into this. Um, and they've kind of weaponized something that is, is – you, you don't have any society without – cultural conflict, right? It's, we're, we're all different. There's, you know, diversity exists. Um, plur, pluralism, plurality exists. Uh, the question is, how do you negotiate that? And uh, we moved from a time where the preferred expectation was, well, you know, 
I will tolerate the differences of my neighbor with now. The differences of my neighbor are not only intolerable. They are intolerable because they are morally wrong. And they need to be shunned and banned and anathematized and uh, canceled. Um, And so, you know, conservatives are fond of saying that, you know, uh, law is or what is it? Law is upstream of culture. Culture is upstream of law. I can't remember exactly the the. Usually, the formulation: politics is downstream of culture. Yeah, downstream of culture. Okay, so yeah, I think this started in culture. It started with cultural differences, um, and it's eking its way into politics. But now it's going the other way, in, in which the politicization of it is is furthering the divides and the uh, the dissonance and the conflict between different cultures, uh, whether it be small town, you know, evangelicalism versus, you know, East and West Coast uh, secularism or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, there's all sorts of differences like that in our country and in the world. Um, but they've it's been raised up to the level of politics. And then, you know, now it becomes a matter of tribalism and, and whose team are you on and did we win this time and all that, all those sorts of considerations and gets away from the question of, Neighbors living together peacefully. Let me let me throw another wrinkle in there that I I think you pointed to with the idea that um, a concept of victimization drives a lot of this. That you do have both sides see, seeking greater power and then wanting to impose uh, their view on everyone as a result of gaining that power. But I think it's also married with a sense that both left and right have right now that they're losing, which is. It is odd that typically you would expect that one side would have the sense of that they have the upper hand. But you, you listen to people on the left, you listen to people on the right. They both think that the other side is winning and they are not. You, you mentioned technology in there. I want to explore something there. Um, you mentioned tech earlier. Mm-hmm. Do you think tech and social media are exacerbating these problems? And it, I, I'm recalling from a couple years ago the – uh, Saurabh Amari at, at New York Post and First Things, the, the broadside he launched against David French, the impetus for that was this drag queen story hour in Sacramento, California. Mm-hmm. Saurabh lives in New York City, thousands of miles away. But because of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and the internet in general, that which happens thousands of miles away seems like it's right next door to you. Mm-hmm. It, people will get worked up about one person at a Walmart in Montana who's performatively not wearing a mask during the, the real uh, heat of the pandemic. But they don't know this person. It's not their neighbor. It's not someone in their community. But they're equally outraged that somebody somewhere else is living in a way that they think is wrong. Is tech making these problems worse? Uh, so... Yeah, I wouldn't blame any of it on tech, but I would say that tech is is a very powerful megaphone. Um, and there's a few ways in which it amplifies these sorts of things. Um, one is ostensibly positive, but I think it can have some very negative uh, results in that the person who would have been uh, a loner uh, in ages past now can always find a community of like-minded people, right? You could have been... You know, for, you know, to use a stereotypical example, you could be the village atheist, right? Um, And you would be like the one guy in town. But now you go on the internet 
And you can find thousands of people. Just You can find a whole community. Um, and now it's not just, okay, I know I'm a little different. Um, and again, that can be very positive. I mean, we don't actually want to ostracize people, <laughs> right? Um, but on the other hand, you know, then you, you get uh, uh, greater numbers, give you a louder voice. Um, other people take notice. They say, hey, I want to be your advocate too. Um, and it, again, you get this kind of snowball uh, effect going on. Um, uh, the other thing is, yeah, you, you you just hear about news that you otherwise wouldn't hear about. Um, and I would I would venture to say, I, I don't have any notes <laughs> to talk about this, but uh, now that you, you talk about the outrage, I think there are some people who take an odd sort of pleasure in being outraged. Um, and it's, it's almost like a, I, I hate to use the metaphor, but it's almost like a drug, right? That like every week they got to get their hit of outrage. Uh, and so they're looking for the next scandalous news story so they can, they can get up there and they can, you know, show how right they are and, you know, more, you know, righteously indignant they are. Um, and I think that's incredibly harmful. In fact, uh, one of my favorite, uh, I have, I have a lot of favorite desert, uh, <laughs> church fathers, but one of my favorite church fathers is St. John Cassian. And, um, in, in one of his works, he says, he talks about anger. And to him, the only good and useful anger is anger directed at our own sin, right? It's anger that we're trying, we're directing towards our own shortcomings in order to be better. Um, he says, otherwise, even if your anger is righteous, uh, it is bad. Uh, and his, his metaphor he gives, he says, uh, leaves, whether made of gold or lead, when placed over the eyes, make one equally blind. So also anger, whether righteous or un- unrighteous, blinds our vision of God. Um, and I think there's this, again, the, it really characterizes the toxic element of um, the constant news feed that people get through social media and the constant uh, echo chamber that you can very easily develop where you just say, oh, I'm right. And look at how many people agree with me. And uh, shouldn't everybody be upset about this? Why isn't everybody upset about this? Um, yeah, so I think Adam Smith uh, is actually really helpful for helping us think through what is going on here in terms of political correctness or cancel culture or um, all these other sorts of speech codes and behavioral uh, shaming and that sort of thing. How do we negotiate it? Where does it come from? How do we distinguish, you know, all these all these different uh, conflicts that are, that are going about? Um, he wrote a book. Uh, Adam Smith is known as the founder of modern economics. His, his book, The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, is basically marks the start of modern political economy. Um, but in his time, there was no such thing as a professor of political economy. He was a moral philosopher. And his first book, written 17 years earlier, uh, was titled The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And you would think, okay, he's a moral philosopher. He published a book on morality. It probably is like any other ethics book. He has his foundational principle from which he reasons, okay, this is moral, virtuous behavior. And then you open the book, and it is the most bizarre book I think anyone could ever read in, in the genre of ethics, in that he's actu- what he's actually doing is a sort of Newtonian, natural scientific, observational study. And he's trying to answer the question, how do we become moral? How do we learn morality? How do we, what shapes our behavior in 
moral ways. And he starts not by talking about what is moral or good or virtuous, but what is proper. Uh, he, he focuses on propriety, which might also be a kind of cultural thing. He's Scottish, uh, and uh, that's maybe a greater concern uh, in certain cultural circles. But but it's, it's fascinating to me and I think incredibly insightful. So um, – as, as kind of a lead-in, because I, I, you know, I mentioned uh, we this conflict over, uh, oh, everybody thinks the same as me, and why don't those other people, and they must be bad uh, if they don't. Um, he has this, this quote uh, that I think is a good lead-in. He says, uh, he who admires the same poem or the same picture or admires them exactly as I do must surely allow the justness of my admiration. He who laughs at the same joke and laughs along with me cannot well deny the propriety of my laughter. Uh, it reminds me of... Uh, uh, the movie High Fidelity, which I, I include in my notes, is, oh, this will be a hip reference. And I realize it's like 20 years old. So it, it's probably not a hip reference. But It's still a good reference, though. It's a great movie. There's a line in the movie where John Cusack, he's constantly breaking the fourth wall, talking to the audience. And at one point he says, what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Now, he's talking about dating and whatnot. Uh, but there's and, – and I think what – what you are like does matter. But the point he's making, I think, is a very uh, legitimate one, and it goes along with what Adam Smith is saying, that there is a a foundation of culture and of norms and behavior that comes in these sorts of things. Do you like the same things as me, and do you dislike the same things as me? Um, when my when my oldest son, Brendan, was four or five, you know, he's starting kindergarten, he's nine now, um, at some point my wife and I realized – all of his entertainment consumption, which we didn't do too much of, but it was all, like, stuff we were nostalgic for. So he had seen, like, one or two seasons of Fraggle Rock, uh, right? But I realized, how is he going to connect with other five-year-olds, right? This kid needs some Pokemon and some Power Rangers stat, right? So so we shifted because I was like, this is – I remember being a kid on the playground. What do you do? You say, hey, do you like that? Yeah, I like that too. Let's play. Let's be friends, right? Um, these supposedly superficial things are actually really important for neighborliness and for getting along with one another. Um, so on the, on the other hand, Smith says, on the contrary, the person who upon these different occasions either feels no such emotion as that which I feel or feels none that bears any proportion to mine cannot avoid disapproving my sentiments on account of their dissonance with his own. Um, and this, is again, is exactly that phenomenon we see. We find these echo chambers of people who think and talk and act just like us. Uh, and then when we go outside of them, uh, everything becomes alien and foreign and, and more than that, reprehensible. To us, uh, because we have come to understand our propri- our expectations of a propriety as being equivalent to what is good and moral. Uh, Smith thinks it's important, but he does not equate the two. Before I get to my favorite Adam Smith quote, you you caused me to think of something there. That the if I could go back to the the tech question for a moment, sure. What what's interesting is that we have. Um, People have argued that we're in this golden age of television, and as people who've spent the last year largely at home because of the pandemic, you know, I assume you, perhaps like me, have done a lot of uh, TV streaming and and found cool and fun new things to watch. You know, I thought just finished watching WandaVision, which I thought was really cool and phenomenally done and nostalgic in a certain way because it paid uh, homage to television of yesteryear. 
And what it made me think about is there is a lack of a shared culture now because there is so much creativity going on and the mechanisms we have for distributing it through the internet, through streaming, um, open up so many avenues for so many different shows and so many different niche interests that there, we, we lose that kind of common culture. What you were talking about with your son, his ability to relate to, you know, other kids in his kindergarten class with things like power Rangers, um, if you go back to the series finale of MASH, I think something like two-thirds of all televisions in America were tuned to that when it aired. Yeah. It, you would be lucky to get, you know, what, a hundredth of the total televisions tuned to the same thing at the same time these days. And we lose, I think, some ability. While we've gained incredible creativity, we've lost some kind of a common culture about the things that are being created. Yeah, and I mean, logistically, right, There, most people are not subscribed to every different streaming service. Like, my wife and I, we, we have Disney+, Plus mostly for the kids. In fact, it was a, originally a gift from um, Kelly's aunt and uncle, uh, and then we've continued it since then. But, oh, they happen to have all the Marvel stuff, so we watch that, right? Um, I wouldn't have just bought Disney+, Plus for Marvel, <laughs> but I just happen to have it. There are other shows that people talk about. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really interesting. They're like, oh, yeah, it's on HBO Max. I'm like, oh, I guess I'll just never see that. <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm not right, paying for right. that. Um, uh, people can only, I mean, some people, I guess, could could get all of them. But people only got so much time and they only got so much money. And um, there's not just four networks that everybody gets anymore. I mean, that's been a problem for a long time, I, I suppose. But even with cable, it was like, okay, everybody has about the same 50 channels. Well, I, we're, we're just way beyond that commonality anymore um that that absolutely is uh, i think a problem although there are still some things that bring people together there's still sport sports for example um there's still um yeah i don't know uh, some of the more big network shows still do have some of that function um because everybody can just turn on their tv if they have a digital antenna uh, and get them mm-hmm. um but yeah there's there's kind of this drift uh, that again there's there's this weird sort of Everybody's finding their niche, which I think actually can be, once again, a very positive thing. It's not good for people to feel alone in the world, um, but a niche very quickly can become a tribe. And uh, again, tribes can be familial and positive, but they can also be combative um, and and, um, in that sense, very damaging. So you brought a great quote from Adam Smith. Um, Let me add what is my favorite quote from Adam Smith that I think speaks to uh, the cancel culture conversation that we were having, I I believe also from Theory of Moral Sentiments, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love. He naturally dreads not only to be hated, but to be hateful or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of hatred. He desires not only praise, but praiseworthiness, or to be that thing which, though it should be praised by nobody, is, however, the natural and proper object of praise. He dreads not only blame, but blameworthiness, or to be that thing which, though it should be blamed by nobody, is, however, the natural and proper object of blame. I see a lot of what we were talking about with regard to cancel culture and the way that the individuals at the center of those storms and the people in those mobs behave um at in that situation yeah i think there's so it's it's a really fascinating almost like a moral psychology that he constructs and uh he says you know our sense of what is proper comes from us 
uh, imagining, you know, basically he doesn't use the word empathy because it wasn't current in 1776 or actually 17 years earlier, so 1759. Um, but he, he uses the, the phrase fellow feeling or sympathy. And he, uh, he says what, what we do is we imagine ourselves in someone else's situation and we imagine what we would feel if we were there. Um, but more than that, what we actually really, really want from other people is we want to see them doing that for us, right? We want to see that reflection of uh, someone else being able to express in some way, it might, you know, maybe in just even a small gesture, you get the sense that they feel like, oh, they know if they were in my situation, they would feel a similar way, right? That kind of resonance uh, with that, that understanding of what we have something common here. Um, and they understand that, you know, the way I'm behaving has a reason. Um, and that reason is, is justifiable. It is praiseworthy. Uh, or the way that somebody else uh, behave towards me was blameworthy, and I'm right to be upset about that. Um, you want to, people want that affirmation from other people. Um, and, and it's interesting to me, um, that, uh, you know, I, I start, I pointed out a little bit of some of this stuff, how it happens on the right as well. Um, not to do a sort of whataboutism of, you know, well, hey, you know, People on the right do it as well, so people on the left are, can do it their own way or whatever. But more actually, hopefully, I, I think if people could take a step back, they could see uh, there's actually common ground in that, um, you know, if, give just a few examples. Um, uh, Alex Narasta, a few years ago, he's from the Cato Institute, he wrote an article on patriotic correctness uh, for the Washington Post. And he talked about how, you know, the, the, the right has its own version of political correctness. You know, they criticize Black Lives Matter. They say it's, it's, it's racist or it's identity politics or whatever. Uh, but then they start, you know, they post all their Blue Lives Matter memes, right? Um, well, if you look at both of those, the idea is that we have people who in their day-to-day -day lives are constantly in danger. Uh, they're in great stress. They've undergone great trauma. Um, that could describe both groups. That's actually an amazing amount of common ground people have if they can depoliticize uh, these these different agendas and take a step back and see each other uh, in 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 the grievance that otherwise they wouldn't would not understand and have a conflict with um, another example um, I, I I like to think about you know you have Starbucks and Chick Fil A right you have uh, Starbucks changed their their Christmas blend to holiday blend and people on the right said oh no they're trying to cancel Christmas well we got to boycott them we're going to cancel them right uh, Chick Fil A you know. It found out, not surprisingly to me, but apparently people at least, again, maybe they just wanted to be outraged, but uh, found out, hey, the the traditional Christian owners have traditional Christian values when it comes to marriage. Oh, no, well, now we got to cancel Chick-fil-A. We can't possibly eat their chicken sandwiches. Um, and I look at that as, wow, you know, it's kind of the same thing happening, right? Um, you know, conservative Christians might not have a lot of fellow feeling or sympathy towards transgender individuals. Um, but if you take a step back and say, well, do you know what it feels like to be marginalized and ridiculed and excluded? Uh, well, yeah, right? I mean, it, as long as I can remember, there's been like the Flanders family on The Simpsons, who's, you know, the butt of so many jokes. There's been, it's been very... Uh, 
uh, accepted among certain circles of propriety as proper to make fun of a whole demographic of people. Um, and that goes both ways. It goes for transgender people as well. One example I thought of was uh, around from around the same time, the early 90s, uh, the movie Billy Madison. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Oh, yes. Um, but Steve Buscemi plays a, a man, a uh, very marginal character, but uh, Billy Madison is having a moment where he's trying to be a better person, so he calls up this guy, uh, I can't remember the character name, but Steve Buscemi, to apologize for being mean to him in high school. And then uh, he says, oh, hey, well, thanks for calling. He hangs up the phone, and he takes out his list of people to kill. <laughs> and he scratches <laughs> off Billy Madison's name, and then he puts lipstick on his lips. Why? Well, the impression being, well, what a weirdo this guy is, right? You know, it's just this overt, we're going to add this extra layer of uh, ridicule. Now, that's not to say that one or the other can't ever have anything wrong with their worldviews. You know, not every worldview is compatible. Not everybody's perspective is simply a matter of taste. Um, But there should also be some common ground. We should come to people, uh, you know, again, uh, people on the left should realize that Evangelicals really do feel this way of we are being attacked, and, and conservative Christians in general. Uh, people on the left, the transgender community, uh, which I understand uh, how people can be upset and afraid or whatever, but uh, the incidences of anxiety, depression, suicide in this community is huge. It's, it's like off the charts. This is a, a mental health crisis in our country, and these people are neighbors creating the image of God. The Christian response to that has to first be love and mercy before anything else. It doesn't mean that, therefore, you have to compromise whatever other values you have. But, man, if we could see ourselves and other people and start there, which is exactly what all of us want to do, according to Adam Smith, um, then maybe we have a way forward. Uh, maybe we have a, a place to start. Dylan Palman is a research fellow at the Acton Institute and the managing editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.